Okay, now we're going to begin the worst Christmas series, uh, the worst way to start off a Christmas series ever imaginable. Uh, and, I, and I mean that. This is like the worst way to start a Christmas series. And if anyone has a real problem with it, I'm going to give 100% credit to the creativity of this Christmas series to Sam Whitaker. It was his idea that we do this. He pushed for it. I was hesitant. Um, he was a little zealous. So, so here we are. Prepare him room week one. And so you know I'm not kidding. If you have a child in the room... You probably want to take them to our children's programming right about now. We're in, now, preface this. You can decide as a parent. You can decide, it's up to you, parent. I'm not going to say anything that's not directly in the Bible. However, we're going to be in the Old Testament and in the oldest part of the Old Testament. So, it's not me who's saying it, it's in the Bible. But today is, it's graphic. There's it's a lot of bad stuff, um, so parents, you can decide. You can decide. Um, but this is a wonderful way to kick off the Christmas season by diving into Genesis chapter 38. But before we do, though, I want to say why we're doing this. Okay. Uh, in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of those Gospels serve as, serve as biographies for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So biographical accounts. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's biographical storytelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he begins with a genealogy. Now, genealogies are the part, usually, unless you're one of those straight-A type of students who have to get everything right all the time, genealogies are often the places modern Christians like to skip in their daily devotionals. They just kind of start rushing the name. Like, you want to be righteous, you start off you know, begat so-and-so, but by the end, it's like a minute, and you just keep going. Um, but to the ancient person, the genealogies contain significant information, incredibly important information. You just have to be willing to wade through them and let the genealogies lead you where they want to lead you. So Matthew begins his epic story of the life of Jesus with a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, dot, 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 dot. The reason why it's dot, dot, dot is this is a third of Matthew's genealogy. It's a third of it. But already, to the ancient reader, you would be detecting an abnormality. And this abnormality will actually be repeated throughout the genealogy. It doesn't necessarily stand out to modern people, but to the ancient reader, the abnormality is glaring at you in the face. And it's right here. <clears throat> Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. There's a woman included in the genealogy. In genealogies at this time, only men are included. You trace everyone through the father's line. So to include women in this genealogy would be standing out. And there's the first introduction of one woman named Tamar, and this will be repeated a couple times in Matthew's genealogy. It stands out. Matthew's insistent that the names of these women be included. Now, these women function as the great-grandmothers of Jesus. So in order to tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew wants you to know the names of some of his grandmothers. 
maybe not significant to us, but to the ancient reader of utmost importance. So each week, we're going to look at the story of one of Jesus' great-grandmothers and show how all these stories are leading up and preparing room for the coming of the Messiah, God, with us. Now, in order to understand Tamar's story, though, you have to understand the story of her family. And we'll start off with the patriarchs. The patriarchs are found in the book of Genesis, and they're like the fathers of the faith. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons will eventually form the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one of these sons will lead to a tribe. And so when you're thinking about the sons of the patriarch Jacob, the sons of one of the founders of the faith who formed the 12 tribes of Israel, you might be thinking that like this family is a tight-knit, unified, God-fearing, Lord-serving you know, family that eats dinner together and on Thanksgiving they talk about how thankful they are for each other. Nah, this family's whack, really whack. You know, some of you know what I'm talking about because it just was Thanksgiving for you. And some of you went to family functions where you had to pray and fast, be walking in the spirit before you sat down at that Thanksgiving because you're like, Lord, help me to bite my tongue, Lord. Give me grace to bite my tongue to get through this. You know, see some, I see. Some of you acting like you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you are kind of chuckling underneath. Some, yeah, some of you are cracking up a little harder. I get it. Okay, so here's the good news is, no matter how whack your family is, it ain't going to be as whack as this family. Trust me, you're going to see this. Okay, so you have the 12 sons, and they're, they're dysfunctional. They don't like each other. <clears throat> the youngest son of Jacob is named Joseph, and Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And the other brothers become jealous of Joseph because he's Jacob's favorite. So they devise a plan to kill him. But rather than kill him, one of the brothers named Judah comes up with this plan. And the plan is this. How about we throw little brother into a dried up well and then sell him off to slave traders? You know? This boy's young. He's a teenager. And the brothers conspire to sell off their brother into a life of agony, humiliation, and loneliness. He's a teenager. And this is what they do. Judah, one of the brothers, is seen as kind of leading the deception. And Judah says, look, we can't let father know what we did. So here's the plan. We're going to take Joseph's robe and we're going to kill a goat. And we're going to take the goat blood and smear it on the robe and then take the robe that's now smeared in goat blood and show it to father and say, is, is this, this your boy Joseph's? What happened to him? And then dad will think he was eaten by animals or someone got a hold of him, something like that, but he'll know Joseph's dead. Now, an important note here. Judah takes the goat blood-stained robe and presents it to his father. And he says, Father, ha kerna. Do you see this? It's a Hebrew phrase. Do you see this? It has a nuance of do you recognize, though. It's not just like, did you notice that there's a robe here? It's do you recognize this? Do you recognize who this belongs to? Ha, karna. It comes from the root nakar. <clears throat> that detail will be important for later. When Jacob sees it, he does ha, kanar it. He recognizes it, and he believes his son Joseph to be dead. Meanwhile, 
Simultaneously to our story that'll take place with Tamar, Joseph is sold off into slavery and taken to Egypt. And a whole story develops over there that we'll get to in a moment. But the story continues with Judah. (coughs) Judah, the deceiver, the one who presented the, the robe to his father, has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur is the oldest, Onan the second, Shelah the third. Ur will marry a woman named Tamar. And this is where our story begins. This is the story of Tamar, great-grandmother of Jesus the Christ. Genesis 38, 6-9. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of brother-in-law brother to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Now, for those people new to this church, it's your first time visiting South Valley Community Church. <laughs> I know, you know, you're interested in Christianity. You have people tell you, no, don't go. The Christians are weird. Have, they, have you ever read what's in their Bible? And, you know, some good Christian convinced you that there's nothing weird. And it's, well, there's a lot of weird stuff. And this is one of them. What in the world is going on here? <clears throat> in this day, there is a custom called a leveret marriage. And here it's called the the brother-in-law custom. And the idea is this. If a woman has a husband who dies and they never had children together, then the brother of the deceased husband shall go to the widow and become like a functional husband to provide care and some provision, but especially provide a child. So he would have sex with the widow in order that she might become pregnant. Now, for us, thousands of years removed, you're going like, what in the, who came up with this idea? Who came up with a leveret marriage? Guy's crazy. This isn't just a practice for the early Hebrews. This is a practice that was, was used in many places in the ancient world among several people groups. So there were several people groups who were practicing this idea of the brother-in-law, the leveret custom. Now, in order to understand the reasoning behind the custom, you have to get into the world that is the brutality of the ancient Near East. So, how did this come about? We don't have to like it. What you want to do is understand how it came about. So, if a woman had her husband die and she had no children, there was a number of things facing that woman. First, who would care for this woman in her old age? Well, the sons would. The sons aren't around. There's no children. Who's going to care for this woman as she ages? Who will provide for her? Who will protect her? Who will care for her? More importantly than who will care for her in the future, there is a present danger. The present danger is this. In the ancient Near East world, there are no women in the workplace. There's no such... Tamar can't be an independent woman, get a job, and make a career for herself. There's only two places in the workplace for women in this time period, in this world. And those two places are begging and prostitution. You pick. And so, sort of the ancient safety net that many cultures practice was this idea that she should not be left alone. 
and she should have children to care for her, prevent her from being lonely and care for her as she ages, and more importantly, in the present, not abandon her to begging or prostitution. So that's how the custom came about. Now, what's really weird to us, but for ancient people seemed the most logical, was, well, who would be the, the husband in this situation? And the way the ancient people thought was, well, it should be a brother of the dead husband. Why? So that the child, when conceived, would carry on the name and the family of the original deceased husband. And so if the woman who was a widow became pregnant by the brother, the new child would be considered not the son of the living brother, but the son of the deceased brother. And so that that man's family line would continue on as well. Now, this has economic implications, too, as well. You've got to think through this. So, let's say you're Onan in this situation. Right now, he's going to split his eventual inheritance with one other brother. One other brother's alive. 50-50. If he impregnates Tamar and she conceives, he immediately will then have to treat that new child as his brothers, and the inheritance will be split three ways. Now keep all of that in mind and get back to the text, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Now, you have to imagine this poor girl, Tamar. She's a widow, and her first husband wasn't a good guy to begin with. And now she's faced in a life of begging, prostitution, or to be sent back to her father's house as a widow without children and face the shame of, of her community because of that. It was a young woman with all these horrible tragedies surrounding her, and now Onan, who is supposed to care for this woman and provide her child and provision has essentially made her a virtual sex slave. The text says whenever Onan goes into her, there's, there's an idea of frequency. So whenever Onan wants to have sex with this woman, he does. But he always has his semen spill on the ground as an ancient form of birth control so that she doesn't get pregnant. He has no intention of providing for her, no intention for caring for her, no intention for giving her a son, no intention to love her in any way. And maybe what's worse than all of that, there's no one there to care for the rights of Tamar. Tamar doesn't have it. No one's going to own it and saying, look, what are you doing? No one's there. However, in the story, there is one person who is there. And it's God. You want to know what God does to Onan? He kills him. God kills Onan for his wickedness. And what he, Onan, did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. God hates the treatment of this woman. He detests the behavior of Onan to the point that he kills him 
This is wicked in my sight. Now Judah then steps in, and he only has one son left. And he says, oh, Tamar, go back and be a widow in your father's house and wait for this boy, Shelah, to grow up, and then he'll perform the Leveret brother-in-law custom. Now, for some of you, you might be immediately thinking, well, the widow sent back to her father's house. That's, that's immediately better than her current situation. We're modern people. We do not think like ancient people. The best thing in Tamar's mind that could happen to her would, sh- would be that she would conceive and carry on a family line. That is, the, modern people don't think like this. So she goes back in shame to be a widow without a family of her own, and her future is uncertain. And by the way, the men act in this situation. You're not even certain if your father would accept you back. Because he may say something like, well, why'd these men die? It's because you're wicked. Clearly God would have protected them. This is a horrible, horrible situation. So Tamar remains a widow. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with the veil, wrapping herself and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and had not been given in marriage. Judah had not given him in marriage. So Tamar sees, look, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be married. This, the boy is old enough. Judah is not going to come through on his words. Simultaneously, Judah is about to, to do the sheep sharing thing. And this would have been a celebratory time, a festive time, a time when men might do things they ought not to do. And so the beginning of a plot emerges. Tamar, the text says, removes her widow's garment and covers herself with a veil. Now at this time period, women could externally communicate their status by their garments. So you wore this, that might might mean you're single, you wear this, it might mean you're married, this would mean you're a widow, or this type of clothing might mean you're a prostitute. And all the text says is that she removes her widow's garments and puts on a veil. And it's a foreshadow of what she's about to do. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. (coughs) Two things. First, Judah doesn't just think this woman is a prostitute. He thinks she's functioning as a cultic prostitute. This becomes even more clear later in the text. Now, this means that Judah is not only committing sexual immorality with the prostitute, he is participating in cultic prostitution, a pagan ritual. 
So the idea was this. The prostitute would pretend to be a female goddess, like Ishtar. And as the prostitute had sex with the customer, the customer was said to be like a male goddess, take Baal. And so as Ishtar and Baal have sex in the heavenlies, so you reenact that pagan fertility rite down here on earth. So Judah's committing sexual morality in the most gross, vile, pagan of ways. She realizes he doesn't have enough to pay for the, the sexual activity and says, well, then you need to leave behind something. And there's a signet, the cord, and the staff. Think of these as an ancient form of ID. It's your, she says, give me your California ID card. You leave that with me. So you can't go on without it. <clears throat> car alarm's going off. Someone's breaking into one of your cars. That's why you just leave a Bible out. So if they ever steal something, all they got to steal is a Bible, and then you highlight passages about stealing. <laughs> she takes his ID card. By the way, the signet, the cord, and the staff, especially the signet, probably means that he's a wealthy man. So he's, he's a person that could provide, but he's choosing not to. <clears throat> so she takes those things and then they leave in separate directions. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who is at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, <clears throat> and you did not find her. Looks like you could almost anticipate what's, what's taking place in the foreshadowing. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, you got to understand something. Even in the brutal world of this time, to burn someone alive <clears throat> is grotesque and over the top. There is only few crimes in many of the people groups in the surrounding times where you would burn somebody. It was reserved for the most heinous of crimes. But Judah, in his anger, immediately says, bring the woman out and burn her. Now, this is the height of hypocrisy, right? Like, it can't get any worse than this. Let's review the details. I mean, forget, forget all the stuff that Judah was said to this woman. Like, I'm gonna give you one of these sons to, to be the person who performs the lever at marriage. I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna do X, Y, Z. Put that on the side. Just think about the immediate. He just had sex with a cultic prostitute. Oh, but the woman is pregnant from immorality. Kill her, burn her alive. He participated in cultic prostitution. And not only that, He's mad because she shouldn't be pregnant. Who should she be pregnant by? One of his sons, whom he has not given to her. So the hypocrisy, it doesn't get any worse than this. This is absolute evil. 
But then, it says, bring her out, let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Now you gotta imagine the courage and the tenacity of this young woman. She prob- she's being brought out to be burned. The pain and agony that awaits her, it's there. She might even see the wood being stacked. But as she's going out, she has enough courage, tenacity, or maybe anger. Maybe it's not even courage. It's just, I hate him so bad. If I'm going to go down, I'm taking him with me. You don't know the details. But she says, please identify whose these are. Now, this is where, again, the Bible is better than whatever you can think of. The Bible has the best stories ever. When she says, please identify, she uses a specific phrase. Remember the backstory. Judah, the deceiver, disguising a robe with goat blood, presenting it to father. Father, ha karna. Now the woman has deceived the father-in-law. And before she goes to the flame, she presents to him the evidence and says, ha karna. Do you recognize this? Now, in that moment, there's not just a recognition of some evidence, right? There's more going on here. There's layers. There is a recognition that these are Judah's items. But in recognizing Judah's items, he's actually recognizing himself. And not just a recognition of self in the sense like these belong to me. It's like a mirror is put before his actions and behavior. And it's like, Judah, do you recognize yourself? Do you know who you've become? You are the guilty person wanting to kill the innocent, to burn alive the innocent. And so as Judah is faced with these wrestlings, it's, it's, it's almost as if there's a flood of emotion that comes over him. And maybe he has flashbacks to throwing his brother in the dried up well, flashbacks to, to him being taken off by slave traders, flashbacks to him holding the, the blood-stained robe and saying, Father, ha karna, do you recognize this? We don't know all the details, but we know what he says next. Verse 26 Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. After this, the story ends here. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. It is from Tamar and her son Perez that the line of Jesus Christ is being formed. When Matthew tells his story of the life, death, and resurrection, he begins with the genealogy. And the first name that he highlights in an abnormal, significant way is the name of Tamar, great-grandmother of Jesus. Now, 
what are you to make of a story like this? It's like, what do you, what do, you do with this? Now, part of the problem is when, when modern Christians read the Bible, they want the Bible to do things that the Bible doesn't want to do. What I mean by that is this. You want after this weird story for the narrator to come in and be like, I know this sounded weird, but there's many lessons you can learn. Do not seek out prostitutes during sheep shearing. It's likely a deception. Do not accept IOUs for they can come back to haunt you. Like it doesn't work that way. And you don't want it to deep down anyway. A good movie or a good story doesn't broadcast its morality. It doesn't say, here's moral principle number one. Follow this to live a long, good life. A good story tells a story. And when you're done with it, you go, oh, man. And what do you want to do? You want to talk about it with your friends. and You want to bounce back ideas. Some of you participate in the ancient ritual of hanging out after the movie is done at the movie theater for 45 minutes discussing the movie. It's like, you just do it. And so this story is trying to teach us so many, I mean, there's tons of things this story is doing, tons, but it's not going to broadcast them in a way that we would like, but deep down, we don't want it to anyway. You want to let the story tell the story it's trying to tell and then be moved by it. So three things from this story, there are tons, but three that I want to draw attention to. In this crazy, bizarre story, you are going to see God's provision for women God's provision for the bad guys, and then God's provision for the son of Judah. I want to break each one of these down. What do I mean by God's provision for women? Because it sure looks like the women are being horribly treated in these stories, right? I'm going to even up it. The women before Tamar, the wives of, say, Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, they're treated just as poorly. And so Genesis is filled with women being neglected, abused, and mistreated. And many modern people, including maybe some of your friends, or you might have wrestled with this, you look at the Bible and you go, I can't believe this is so sexist, so misogynistic. This is just gross. Look at at how evil the men are and how the women are treated. And I want to tell you, you're partially right, but you haven't gone deep enough. You're staying surface level. Because as the Bible is recording the treatment of women, particularly in this section of the Bible, there is a subverting that's taking place. And God himself is going to come in and subvert the normal cultural customs and norms for the day. And so listen to how this works. With the patriarchs, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then finally with the son of Jacob, Judah, in the story of Tamar. In each one of the lives of the patriarchs, the patriarchs mistreat women. In the story of Abraham, you have the abandoned Hagar. In the story of Isaac, you have the exploited Rebekah. In the story of Jacob, you have the story of the unloved Leah. In the story of Judah, you have the story of the widowed Tamar. Now, in each one of these cases, you are going to see a theme develop. And the Tamar story functions as a sort of climax to the theme that's being developed. And the theme is this. The women are mistreated and forgotten, but God sees them. And when the biblical authors say that he sees them, that he doesn't just mean like, well, God is omniscient and he sees all things. It's God sees them, he knows them, he knows their name, he loves them, and he'll bring provision in the midst of this horrible situation. So I'll show you how this works. Story with Abraham. He's married to a woman named Sarah. Abraham and Sarah can't, 
conceive. Sarah's barren and they want to have kids. Now they're getting old in age and it's pretty much laughable that they would ever have kids. So Sarah has this brilliant idea. Sarah says, Abraham, you have this concubine named Hagar. Why don't you have sex with her? She could get pregnant and then we could just all be like a good, happy family and we'll treat the new boy as our son. And Abraham, of course, is like, okay. And he has sex with his concubine. Now, the idea is that, hey, listen, let's, we'll just get along, and then finally we'll have children. It's like, no, this is whack. <clears throat> and the biblical authors let you know it's whack because immediately, guess what? Sarah's jealous of Hagar because Hagar has a child from her husband, and she couldn't have a child. And so on multiple, a couple occasions, Sarah is abusive and threatening Hagar and the child so much that Hagar has to flee for her life. And one of the first instances, in the first instance where Hagar flees for her life, she goes off into the wilderness. She may think she's going to die. She is the poor concubine that's been abandoned that no one cares about. However, someone shows up for her. God does. And so after the encounter with God, Hagar says this. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a seen God. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. So seeing is the theme that's being developed all throughout Genesis. And with women, the case is that God sees them or someone sees them to provide and care for them when others aren't. Now, you got to understand, Hagar is the poor concubine who's been rejected. In ancient literature, no one cares about the poor concubine. No one does. In some of the very first stories of the Bible, we're early in human history. Genesis, is the time this has been written, we're talking about within the first 1,000 years of recorded human history. In the first book of the Bible, in a world where no one cares about the abandoned, rejected, poor concubine, the God of the Bible sees her. And after the encounter, she says, I have seen him who looks after me. <clears throat> Isaac and Rachel. I mean, Isaac and Rebecca. <clears throat> Isaac is the son of Abraham. He has a wife named Rebecca. There's a famine in the land, and he has to flee to a new land, Gerar. And uh, he stays there for quite some time because of the famine in his homeland. Now, while he's there, he has a concern. His concern is that people are going to look at his wife, Rebecca who's incredibly beautiful, and they're going to want to marry her. But in order to marry her, they'll have to kill her husband. And Isaac goes, well, that's me. So he tells Rebecca, if people ask you who I am, tell them that you're just my sister. Oh, and by the way, wherever they take you, whatever they need from you, just go ahead and get it done and pretend you're my sister. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because Isaac is not the first person to do this. He's not even the first patriarch. How many patriarchs have there been before Isaac? One. His dad did this. Abraham did the same type of thing. No, no, no. When the men come and want to have sex with you, pretend we're siblings, not spouses. It's like, come on, how low can you get? So... Rebecca's exploited. She's supposed to, to lie 
and do what needs to be done in order to save Isaac's life. And so when they had been there quite some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing. Isaac's name means laughter, by the way. So he looked out the window and saw laughter laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, okay, I got to pause right there. <laughs> lest I die because of her. Okay, I'm not going to go too long here. This is, lest I die because of her. Listen to me, men. If you're married, your first inclination in life is, of course I die to protect my wife. That is your role and your responsibility. You lay down your life without blinking for your bride. You lay down your life. Your wife, and if you have kids, them as well. That's what men are called to do. You don't even blink. And here Isaac is doing the opposite. And where did he pick up this behavior? From his dad. So the second side note is, men, your kids are watching. The same behavior you employ, your kids will pick that up. And it will be justified in their minds because their father did it. So Isaac says, lest I die. Verse 10, Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Abimelech, king of the Philistines in this story, is depicted as more righteous than Isaac. The pagan is going, whoa, we're not trying to do, we're not trying to incur any guilt on us. He looks out his window, he looks and he sees, and because of this, then he says, let no harm come to this man or this woman. <clears throat> the story of the third patriarch, Jacob. Now, if you thought this family was whack enough, it just keeps, it's just, it should be encouraging to you on Thanksgiving. It's like, Jacob marries two women. He also has two concubines, but he has two wives, Rachel and Leah, and their sisters. Now, in the story, Rachel is depicted as the beautiful one who every man would want to be with. And Leah is depicted as the less attractive woman, the woman who's not noticed, the woman who no one pays attention to. Jacob is deceived into marrying Leah. How? There's coverings you can't see. Does this all sound familiar? Deception where you can't see people's true identity? Jacob is deceived he marries Leah, and to make a long story short, he then has to work a lot longer, and eventually he gets to marry Rachel as well. But Rachel is the one whom he loves. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Leah is the one depicted as the less attractive, less noticed, no one knows her, no one pays attention to her sister. And in the ancient world, in the ancient literature, that person is not going to be exalted in any way. All attention is going to be given to Rachel. But what does God do? God sees Leah. He sees her. And for Leah, in this time period, the greatest blessing that God could give her would be to give her children. So God sees Leah. He sees that she was hated, and he blesses her. So in all of the patriarchs' lives, you have the failure of men leading to suffering women, to the suffering of women, but you have God stepping in and seeing 
and protecting and sovereignly working. <clears throat> so the first thing we get from this story is that in the middle, in the midst of all this sin and evil and wickedness, God is sovereignly working and noticing. He's seen. I know some of you need to know that. You feel abandoned, not noticed, not cared for. Even if this whole world would abandon you and forget your name, there is one who will never cease to love you and to serve you. That's Siri. She's another woman. (laughs) She's from the book of Revelation. Um, There's a passage about three sixes in a row. That's another sermon for another time. So you have God's provision for women, and then you have the one that we don't want. God's provision for the bad guys. No one wants, people like part one. No one likes part two, God's provision for the bad guys. What I mean by provision for the bad guys? In the story, who's our bad guy? Judah. He's a horrible dude. Like some of you were sitting here and you're just like, I'm just waiting. You know how God killed Onan? When God gonna kill Judah? It's like, that's if you're like me, you're going, no, he should burn at the stake. Tie him up. It's a crazy nutcase. But you gotta realize is that God is so loving and merciful, he actually shows mercy to the bad guys. And how does he do this for Judah? For Judah, God had to bring pain and humiliation into his life in order that he might finally repent, in order that he might finally see himself where he truly is. When Tamar says, ha karna, it's not just do you recognize these, it's Judah finally coming to the realization of who he is. And what does he say? She is more righteous than I. Now you, you wonder immediately, what's the trajectory of that? Where does that lead? What happens to Judah? Well, his story doesn't end. As the book of Genesis goes on, his story picks up, and it picks up in a profound way. <clears throat> it picks up with the life of Joseph, the younger brother who was previously sold into slavery. He got sold off, went off to Egypt, and to make a really long story short, he's worked his way up to the top of the Egyptian corporate ladder. Now he's number two. He's VP of all of Egypt. There's Pharaoh and then Joseph. In the story, there's a famine where Judah and his brothers are. There's not enough to to survive. And so they travel to Egypt looking for food, things to survive the famine. Now when they get there, they meet Joseph. But guess what? They don't recognize Joseph. Come on. You get, I mean, you get this. Do you feel it? They don't recognize him. Joseph saw his brothers. He sees and recognizes them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And at this point, you should be saying, this sounds familiar. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. So Joseph's pretending. <clears throat> Joseph knows who his brothers are. They don't recognize him. He was just a young boy. And now he's probably all decked out in like Egyptian, big old Mr. T gold chains. Joseph number two, man. Um, and it's like he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Joseph says, Okay, I might, I might be able to provide for your family. But here's the thing. All the brothers can go back to your homeland. 
and go back to your father, but you have to leave the youngest boy to be a slave with me. He'll be my servant. Take the youngest boy and he'll be my servant. And what does Judah do? Judah speaks up. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. God needed to put pain and humiliation in Judah's life. And year after year, God worked with him till he could finally come to the point where he's standing before Joseph, the brother that he sold into slavery, and Joseph says, leave the young boy behind. You've done it before, haven't you, Judah? But Judah, in this moment, finally has the moral fortitude to say, no, 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 I'll stay. Let the boy go. Upon hearing this, this is Joseph's response. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to the brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. I mean, what do you think, Joseph? If you were one of the brothers and now the brother you sold off into slavery is number two, what do you think he's gonna do? You know what I would do? Kill all them betrayers. I'm number two. You came back here, my, my, have the tables have turned. But Joseph's weeping. He can't believe it. And he weeps at the moment when Judah is willing to take the place of the younger brother. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve you. You see, this is powerful. You sold me, God sent me. You sold me into slavery. God sent me to save you. And that is leading into the kind of last point of these stories. There is provision for the women in the story, provision for the bad guys. And then finally, it's in and through this messed up family that God is preparing the space that would eventually lead to the birth of his son. Who would be killed as a slave who would be abandoned and forsaken by a group of disciples who appeared as a slave to the world, but if you had eyes to truly recognize who he was, you would see the king crowned in glory, who men meant evil against, but God meant for good, and by one slave's death, life is brought to many others. You sold me into slavery. God sent me to save you. And then one of the final, one of the most popular verses in all of scripture, the conclusion to Genesis. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see God's mercy and provision working in the most horrible of situations. 
And that should be incredibly encouraging because there are some of you in this room who you know, like, man, my life has been messed up. My family is whack. There is so much evil that has, has been done. I've done so much evil and evil has been done to me. If God could work through that family to bring about a good, so good as the birth of his son, then God could take whatever whack situation you might find yourself in and use it for good. They sold me, he sent me. It's like, man, Abraham, polygamous, dysfunctional relationship, abandoned concubine, Isaac exploiting his wife to protect his own neck. Jacob has 12 sons with two women, two concubines. They hate each other, sell a brother off into slavery. One of the brother grows up to have sex with a cultic prostitute, tells her to be burned alive, committing the ultimate act of hypocrisy. Yeah, if God is working through that family, dude, he could work through whatever situation you find yourself in today. And so God is preparing all of human history through his sovereign hand to prepare them for the coming of his son. And it's through the death of that slave that all can find life. So as you walk away from this passage, know the Bible is better than you think it is because through that story, so much is taking place. Two, the Bible tells the story of a lot of wicked, a lot of wicked men and one good God. And three, be encouraged because whatever problems you have, whatever you're facing, the world might have meant it for evil, but God can use it for good. Let's pray. We're going to take communion and then we'll head out of here. Please stand. As we prepare ourselves for communion, I want to go back to Judah. Judah will ultimately be the great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. But at the climax of the Judah and Tamar story, you have Judah wanting to preserve his life. We can pass him out. <laughs> wanting to preserve his life at the cost of the innocent. Judah is the guilty one wanting to take the life of the innocent. In the son of Judah you have the truly innocent one laying down his life for the guilty. And I also want you to think about Jesus on the cross. Because 2,000 years ago, we find ourselves in a similar situation to today. People didn't recognize who he was. They laughed and mocked. Thought he was a crazy man, thought he was a blasphemer, and as Jesus is hanging on a cross, dying the slave's death, no one is able to see it. Today, you live in a world where more and more people see Christ, not as king, but as a crazy false prophet, a madman, or maybe just a good teacher, but they don't recognize him. They don't have eyes to see as Christians, God has given us grace and allowed our eyes to be opened. That's what the gospel does. It's grace. It's unmerited grace. What did you do to open your eyes? You didn't do anything. God did it for you on your behalf. 
but also as Christians, and this is what communion does. It calls us to remember that grace received, and then it calls us to look forward in anticipation for his return. And until his return, we tell the world of what we see. You tell the world of what you see. It was not just a slave that died on that cross. It wasn't just a madman who died on that cross. It was the king of kings, the king of glory, the truly innocent one dying on behalf of the guilty. So communion helps us to remember and recommit to telling of who Jesus really is. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body broken for you, the innocent dying for the guilty. He says the, the cup is the blood of the new covenant. It's the blood of the new covenant. Innocent blood shed on behalf of the guilty. As we take this, Lord, we promise to proclaim who you really are to a world who's had their eyes blinded. Lord, we see you. Help us to see you all the more clearly. Father God, we thank you for your word, for the scriptures. May they continue to enrich us, to teach us, to convict us, to inspire us. We thank you for your son, the truly innocent one who dies on behalf of the guilty. And Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you're a God who cares for the outcast, the lonely, the abandoned, the vulnerable, that you care for the orphan, the widow, Lord, help us be a people that care for the things that you care for. And in doing so, may we not take any glory for ourselves, but point back to you, for you are the one that inspires us, enables us, and convicts us to do good in this world. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our prayer team will be up front. If you have anything you want to pray about or talk about, they'd love to do that with you. You guys have a wonderful rest of your Sunday.